0: Welcome everyone to Becker's CEO and CFO virtual forum. My name is Morgan Hafner. I'm an editor with Becker's Hospital Review and will be your moderator today for our discussion on the lessons straight journey to value-based care. Where are we now? During our conversation today, we will talk about the future of value-based care and how changes from lawmakers, commercial insurers and employers are affecting providers. So speaking on this topic with us today, are Dr. Will Barsom, the President and Chief Transformation Officer at the Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company, Dr. Rakesh Suri, the CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, and Dr. Albert Mosley, the Senior Vice President and Chief Mission Integration Officer at Methodist Le Healthcare in Tennessee. A warm welcome to you three, and before we start our conversation today, I'd like you each to take 30 seconds to introduce yourselves. So, Well, let's
1: start with you. Oh, thank you very much Morgan, I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here uh, with you in this uh, esteemed panel. Uh, So as you mentioned, uh, I I am a physician, I'm a uh, orthopedic surgeon. I continue to practice uh, orthopedic surgery. I specialize in hip and knee replacement. Uh, And uh, most recently have taken a role with Hopco, uh, which is uh, how we refer to a healthcare outcomes performance company. Um, I am the uh, president and chief transformation officer uh, there and that is an organization uh, that really specializes in musculoskeletal health, which most folks know is one of the largest spends in healthcare uh, around the globe. Certainly here in the United States, and unfortunately, is actually uh, associated with uh, probably the largest inflationary spend uh, in healthcare. So we've really taken a, a, a strong look at, at trying to understand how we can bring down costs in musculoskeletal care, and more importantly improve the quality uh, in musculoskeletal care. Prior to this role, uh, I actually came out of uh, the same organization uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Suri is at right now, the Cleveland Clinic, where I was the uh, uh, president and CEO of Cleveland Clinic Florida, which is a $2 billion healthcare system with about uh, 11,000 caregivers in Florida.
0: Great, thank you, Will. And Albert?
2: Thank you, Morgan. It's certainly a delight to be here with each of you today. Uh, I'm Albert Mosley, Senior Vice President, and Chief Mission Integration Officer for Methodist Le Healthcare. Uh, We are based in Memphis, Tennessee. We are a not-for-profit comprehensive health system with over 13,000 employees and 2,500 physician partners. Um, Our system also has roughly 100 ambulatory care settings, a good number of which are Located in sections of our community where we are the only healthcare provider. Um, I have responsibility in our system largely for a number of our um, community outreach efforts. Um, I'm responsible for our systems foundation, which uh, raises money for service line development, capital projects, and program expansion. Also have responsibility for our behavioral health service line, uh, social determinants of health, and um, Uh, a lot of our community health initiatives, including population health and chronic disease self-management.
0: Excellent, thanks for joining us Albert and Rakesh.
3: Thank you. It's a really a pleasure to be here today with you Morgan and my my co-panelists. I am currently CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. I joined Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi in 2015 as chief of staff and was uh, tasked with recruiting 420 world-class physicians to open uh, the hospital. We're now five years in operation. Uh, I've been CEO since 2017, privileged to lead 6,000 remarkable caregivers in delivering a world-class care each day. From opening short five years ago to now, delighted to report that we've launched 58 subspecialties, including the nation's first multi-organ transplant program, Uh, a cutting edge state-of-the-art cancer program, education, research, and innovation. Uh, And it's all founded under the partnership between two global iconic organizations, the Cleveland Clinic and Mubadala Healthcare under the visionary auspices of the leadership of the UAE. So it's a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: Great. Thank you all. We have um, local and global perspectives here today. I'm really excited to talk about value-based care and what that looks like to each of you. And as we know, the adoption of value-based care really varies by market. And so I'd like each of you to share a brief overview of your primary markets and what has helped or you know, hindered your value-based care reimbursements and care. Um, strategy from your perspective. So um, I'll have Albert kick us off talking about Tennessee um, and then we'll um, move on from there.
2: Thank you, Morgan. Uh, perhaps uh, the most outstanding feature of our primary market is, uh, is is the grim socioeconomic factors that we face. And these factors most definitely have in, in, in some sense hindered value-based care and value-based reimbursement models here. So in describing our market, um, I've often turned to a literary reference, a literary source, and that's Charles Dickens' Tell of Two Cities. Uh, so Dickens writes about the spring of hope. So Memphis, West Tennessee, can often be described as being in its spring of hope in the sense that we can boast of an extensive list of um, attributes that would lead many to believe that we are indeed you know, a, a market where, where, where you would see and should see some positive indicators. So for example, we're home to three Fortune 500 companies. So FedEx, um, IP, and AutoZone. Uh, we, we are consistently ranked as the number three most charitable city in the nation. Uh, so with roughly 90% of our population donating money to some sort of charitable or nonprofit organization. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Dickens writes about the winter of despair. Uh, our market also happens to be the number one poorest among MSAs with a poverty rate hovering above um, 25% here in our community. For children, this rate is even worse. Uh, roughly 44% of our children in the market live at or below the federal poverty level. We've been ranked as the number 10 most unhealthy city in, in the country, graded across, graded across healthcare, food, fitness, and green space. And perhaps um, one of the more more uh, shocking aspects of our market is the fact that, you know, the chasm between the rich and the poor, especially along racial lines, is particularly particularly noticeable in our community. So, for non-Hispanic whites, uh, there is you know there's an overall poverty rate of slightly above 10%. For non-Hispanic blacks, uh, there is an overall poverty rate just shy of um, 30%. And so there is a very statistically significant difference between the two. Memphis also happens to have the fourth highest crime rate in the United States. And this is largely due to the lack of socioeconomic opportunities for so many uh, members of our community. So I share that that socioeconomic landscape as a way of really painting a picture for you and helping you to understand that, um, um, you know, You know, many of these challenges also relate to accountability for health outcomes, specifically when the baseline health status and social determinants of health are at such a low point. So in essence, in our market, we're beginning at a deficit. Uh, We are treating a patient population that is, by and large, poor, sicker, and faced with greater socioeconomic challenges that contribute to overall health.
0: Yeah, those are absolutely massive challenges when it comes to implementing value-based care programs You're dealing with two different, two different cities, as you said. So thanks for sharing that insight with us. And I'd like to ask Rakesh, can you talk about your primary market and sort of what's working in value-based care there and then maybe what's some of your challenges that you're facing?
3: Thank you. So just to frame the context, um, we were asked to come in to bring world-class care Preventing people from having to travel abroad, uh, and training the next generation of caregivers so that this type of care could continue for generations to come. Um, that was our initial mandate uh, when we when we uh, built the hospital and opened our doors. Three unique things about this this milieu, this healthcare environment. Number one, there's a need of the people. For generations uh, before we arrived. When, when a patient had a heart valve condition, the first call they made was not to their local cardiologist, but rather to the airlines to seek care in some far corner of the planet. And therefore, there's a true need of the people. The second unique thing is we have very visionary leadership uh, in, in the UAE, and it's been a, truly a pleasure to work alongside them and under, uh, under their guidance. And the third is we have two great global stakeholders who are committed and have been committed for roughly 16 years now to deliver on the mission I mentioned. When you think about the scope of what that mission could, could accomplish, it's really mind-blowing. Within a six-hour flight radius of where we practice in the main campus in Cleveland, Ohio, we can touch probably 500 million lives. Within that same six, seven-hour flight radius from Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, it's nearly 3 billion lives. So when you think about value-based care for the, the the population of humanity who truly need it, it's really an opportunity. So not only did we bring those complex therapies, they were able to prevent people from traveling abroad, but then we had to build the healthcare ecosystem underneath it to not only treat people when they got sick, but to keep them healthier for longer, to forego the delayed costs of care that really escalate healthcare expenditures later in life. So while we've, we've, we've come out uh, successfully and delivered that tertiary and quaternary care, we're now partnering with those stakeholders I mentioned to develop a network of very forward-looking, primary and secondary care through the Emirate and through the nation of the UAE to ensure that people stay healthier, manage chronic diseases, come to attention, medical attention when they need us, where they need us and how they need us, and then returning them to their community. So it's a very, very exciting opportunity in that we're coming into a nation starting late in value-based care, but really focusing on the equation of safety, quality, and patient experience per unit cost.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to have that experience in Ohio and then also this, you know, three billion people we're talking about doing these programs for. It's really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, Rakesh. And well, I'll turn this question to you as well. Can you talk about your primary market and sort of what are your challenges that you face?
1: Sure. So happy to do that, Mark. So it's interesting. We, we don't really have a primary market at Hopka. We, we're partnered with 150 different organizations around uh, the country today. Uh, where we where we work with them on uh, introducing value-based uh, solutions to musculoskeletal health all over the place. You know, we started doing this first in Phoenix. So maybe I'll touch on Phoenix and then afterwards, I'll touch a little bit on South Florida because the Florida market is very unique. So by doing this in Phoenix initially, we've literally taken tens of millions of dollars of spend out of the healthcare system on an annual basis uh, with our partners in Phoenix and, uh, and uh, starting this year, we'll actually be launching our first statewide, actually the, the, the country's first statewide clinically integrated network that takes full risk on musculoskeletal spend uh, throughout the entire state. Uh, so really pretty impressive things that are very forward leaning and forward thinking in terms of taking the uh, cost out of healthcare. But most importantly, in those same markets, we've actually seen a very significant improvement in the quality outcomes that our patients are getting. So when you look at it from the stakeholder perspective on the patient side, patients are thinking, how can I spend a little bit less money to get high quality care? But they're also thinking, how can I make sure that I don't get an infection? My hip doesn't dislocate, that my fracture heals. Those are the things that, that our patients are always thinking about. So ensuring that they have access to the very highest quality care with the lowest expense, I think is clearly, Uh, a very real opportunity. It's interesting when you look at South Florida in terms of kind of the title of this talk, the Less Than Straight Journey to Value-Based Care, it's actually a very interesting market. If you look at South Florida starting in Miami and just going up as north as far as as Palm Beach, which is only about 60 miles away, you have three very distinct markets. The Miami-Dade market, is a market with very high penetration of Medicare Advantage, where you have primary care docs taking full capitated risk on care. Uh, The Broward market, which is Fort Lauderdale, that's just the next county north, has significantly less Medicare Advantage penetration, less uh, managed care and more Medicare indemnity, for example. And then you get up into Palm Beach, which is just the next county north. I mean, again, you know, each of these are, are, are right next to one another, there's almost no Medicare advantage. Uh, so it really is amazing as you start looking at these different markets and how they're set up from a payer perspective, trying to understand what strategies might work in these markets and what partners are most are really uh, teed up to be most successful becomes the key to being able to transform a market to a true value-based care market.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear about those basically three different populations that you're managing in South Florida and thank you all for sharing that it gives a really good background into um, our further conversation and going to talk a little bit about forward looking, you know. Forward-looking and past-looking, you know, talking about the incoming administration changes that could be coming at the federal level. But I'd also like to talk about what you've seen in the past four years under the Trump administration. And, um, you know, you can talk a little bit about what the government systems look like in Abu Dhabi. But um, I'll, I'll ask Albert first. How would you describe the Trump administration's approach to value-based care models? And you know, what are you expecting from this incoming administration?
2: Um, I think, as a summary, uh, uh, certainly not a, uh, a clearly defined approach to value-based purchasing and value, value-based care. Um, I would say value-based purchasing was certainly a tool in the Trump administration's arsenal, but not, not a part of the, the administration's primary health care focus. And I think due undoubtedly to the administration's opposition to the ACA, um, HHS and CMS have, have generally been supportive of value-based care, while at the same time op- opposing the more government-imposed um, uh, aspects of, of the ACA reforms. Uh, I recall hearing uh, one of the CMS spokespersons at the beginning of the Trump administration, I think back in 2017 or so, indicating that the Obama-era goal of having um, um, half of all Medicare payments tied to value-based care models by the end of 2018 was simply not going to be a priority for the Trump administration. And, and of course, um, you also had Secretary um, Azar saying almost the exact opposite at the same time, indicating at one point that uh, value-based uh, transformation, that you know the value-based transformation of our nation's healthcare system was one of his top priorities for HHS. So um, you know it's it's been it's been somewhat unclear um, uh, from my perspective. Um, going forward with the um, with President elect Biden's administration, I think given President elect Biden's historic support of, of the ACA, and now given the fact that he will also enjoy a majority in both the House and Senate for at least two years, I think we can expect to see quite a bit of action and movement on healthcare, wh- whether it's additional steps toward uh, the adoption of value-based care models or, or further expansion of Medicaid. Um, obviously, we all know that President-elect Biden spoke quite a bit about healthcare on the campaign trail, and, and I'm expecting that he will make healthcare a major issue of his administration. And we're all likely to see a focus, I believe, on, on additional innovative approaches to healthcare and perhaps more consideration for uh, social determinants of health as well.
0: And, well, is that something that you agree with as well, that this incoming administration, you're expecting a greater focus on health and especially value-based care program, programming? Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, I, I have to tell you, I think Dr. Mosley's right on the money w- with his comments. And I think part of the reason for some of the confusion is even as we, w- as we switched secretaries of health and human services, when we went, from Secretary Price to Secretary Azar, things changed pretty dramatically in terms of what they were saying, uh, you know, within the cabinet itself. So, so I do think it's it, it is interesting. I mean, when we look at today, really the, the 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 big buckets that a lot of this falls into, I think there's one is you know bundled payments. Uh, so that plan has clearly been expanding over time. Um, many people see that as a race to the bottom. You're trying to take as much cost out, but usually after the first year. You've taken probably 60, 70, 80 percent of the cost out by the second year. There's really a—it's kind of a law of diminishing returns. And after that, uh, on the provider side, all of the savings are out. Um, you're not doing any better. But on the payer side, the payer continues to reap the benefits of the of the uh, uh, of the decreased cost. Now, I think we would all be okay with that if that gets. Uh, then transfer to, to the, to the uh, patients in terms of decreased premiums. I think that would make folks feel pretty good. So I think that, that's really the first idea is, is how do we manage bundled payments? And that's clearly been, I think, a focus of, of both uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administri- administration. I suspect will continue to play a role in the Biden administration. But in truth, really the best way to systematically reduce the cost of care and improve quality is through true population health models, not bundled care models. And true population health models are are tough for people to think about. CMMI has taken some interesting um, tacks with things like alternative payment plans, um, uh, some various programs that are presently being uh, uh, looked at today uh, that, that will look at picking a specific region and taking risk in that region being able to uh, to uh, negotiate price directly with CMS and taking on all the risk uh, as a third party in that region. So I do think we're gonna continue to see more and more of that. And I fully expect uh, that uh, uh, President-elect Biden will likely support that type of work. I think also most importantly, I think something that's near and dear to, to, to any healthcare provider is the fact that I, I think most of us do believe that every Person in this country should have access to high-quality care that doesn't bankrupt them, right? That 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 doesn't hurt them financially, but uh, but allows folks to to really live with dignity. So so all of these things are a necessity, right? If, if we base it on the fact that as a country we spend too much money on healthcare, I think we can all agree that spending twenty percent of our gross domestic product is too much. We've not really seen a, a significant change to that number. And to see a significant change, we're going to have to apply true population health models to really bring down that cost of care while simultaneously improving the quality.
0: Mm-hmm. And Rakesh, how did these policies that we're talking about in the U.S. affect an organization like Cleveland Clinic in Abu Dhabi, you know, from a strategy perspective and also just, you know, from, you know, what Well was talking about, like population health perspective as well.
3: So what, what many don't realize is that um, our model, uh, our financial model here in the UAE is highly scrutinized. Uh, our stakeholders are are one of the most successful uh, private equity and venture capital sovereign wealth managers in the world and this has been tremendously beneficial to us because while we're striving for uh, achieving that value equation again, safety, quality, and experience, the focus on per unit cost has been front and center right from the beginning. So, as many things the uh, innovator's dilemma brings forth in life, where we start out at a at a point that's inferior to the gold standard. as the first U.S. hospital ever ever built uh, from ground up outside of the U.S. The expectations were very high for American uh, quality uh, and experience and innovation, but to do so at a cost that was, uh, that was highly visible and, and carefully scrutinized. So this has taught us all a lot at Cleveland Clinic Gabi Gabi. But what I'd like to speak to is the parallel trend going on in the U.S. right now on cost transparency. We're all familiar with these efforts. Uh, January first was the first date when um, when certain uh, 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 items had to be published online, and our belief is that this will only continue, whether it's delayed or whether it's um, modified. Eventually, all of our, our costs, all of our out, just like all of our outcomes, are going to be uh, very transparent on the web and other forums and be highly scrutinized and compared. So we see this trend, we've seen this trend in the UAE. We've been dealing with it for some years and, uh, and we see it uh, only increasing, not only in the UAE and the US, but elsewhere in the world. Ultimately, as, as my colleagues have just said, uh, all of these efforts are going to eventually benefit the patient if they're done right by focusing on the mid to long-term view managing patients, uh, tackling social determinants of health, keeping people safer, healthier for longer, and then identifying them at the right time and getting them the care they need by the right provider in the right setting, and then returning them to a productive life in the community. So bottom line, these, these, all of these processes that took decades, Needs to evolve in the U.S. are fast-forwarded in the UAE, and we've been on this track for value-based care for some time, and it's ne- it's not going to stop. It's only going to be going to going to speed up.
0: It's really interesting. Thank you, Rakesh, for sharing that. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit before um, we have about ten minutes left before we move on about the pandemic and how that has affected value-based care. Um, and so, Albert, can you share some effects that the pandemic has had on value-based care programs at um, Avedes-Leban at here?
2: Sure, so all in all, I would
0: say
2: here at, here, at, here at MLH, our VBP profile will not change significantly as a result of the pandemic. Um, we are fully engaged and aligned and around providing high quality care from a value-based perspective, even during this sort of extended public health crisis. Um, With that being said, uh, the pandemic has had an effect on some of the key metrics that are considered in value-based models, um, including patient experience scores and tragically uh, mortality. One of the disease categories that we see being impacted by COVID is pneumonia um, in in a rather significant way. And so it will be interesting to see how CMS handles um, any adjustments related, related to this. Uh, we've also seen, as a result of, of you know, the improved um, diligence and attention to um, infection prevention brought on by the pandemic, uh, we, we've seen uh, throughout all of our facilities um, uh, a reduction in hospital-acquired hospital infections. And so that's been, that's been one of the interesting sort of side effects of this, is that because of the you know, the laser focus on, on, on infection prevention, we've seen HAIs reduce rather significantly in all of our facilities.
0: And Will or Rakesh, is that something you're seeing as well as the, the HAIs are going down?
1: So, so we have, I know that that's, that's uh, been frequently cited now at hospitals around the country. You know, the hand washing, the, the, uh, the wearing of fat, of uh, face masks, I think is, has clearly played a, a major role in that. You know, I think there are other areas too that are probably worthy of discussion. I think number one, the uh, incredible use of telehealth as a great way of reaching into communities and reaching uh, into patients' homes and patients' lives in a non-obtrusive uh, way, uh, in, a, in a low effort way for the patients. Uh, that's, I think, been a, a huge boon to, uh, to value-based healthcare. And I think one of the things that, that we do worry about and, and we've, we've heard about and started seeing some of the uh, sequela of is the lack of preventative care that occurred for the several months while people were really staying at home. So from the middle of March until you know, June, July, until people started going back to the hospitals, we saw a significant decrease in ER visits for, uh, for heart attacks, for strokes. And I think we would all agree that it's probably not likely that people were not having heart attacks and strokes. They were just choosing not to come to the ER. And unfortunately they're then left with more severe, uh, sequela, you know, one other potential, um, uh, positive thing that could have come from this is for the first time ever, we've actually seen government providers and pharmaceutical companies working together. Right. I mean, the reality of it is, from the day we had the genetic code for COVID-19 to when the first vaccine was was coming off the line and, and potentially being ready for for early phase testing, was less was just over a month. I mean, that that combination of of a government entity, a pharmaceutical company, and then eventually uh, providers and healthcare systems delivering the vaccine. Uh, is really uh, unsurpassed. It's never happened before. So so there are clearly some things that have come from this that we've learned from and that we will be able to apply in the future for challenging times as, as they'll doubtlessly come up.
0: And, Will, you raise such a fantastic point about the primary care aspect. It's such a tenet of value-based care programs, monitoring people's health, making sure everyone's healthy. And so Rakesh and Albert, if you want to weigh in at all, how, how you're addressing this or, you know, Rakesh, if you're seeing this as well about the primary care visits, you know, going down and how you're addressing that.
3: Our story was slightly different here in the UAE in that we we saw we we're probably the, the first American healthcare organization to see COVID and we saw it as a faint object in the distance uh, with a few cases coming out of Wuhan. But because we're at the crossroads of global travel and we don't have an infrastructure uh, like the FDA or, or the CDC to rely on, we had to take things into our own hands. So, we're very lucky in that the leadership of the nation was very foresightful and made rapid decisions to align the nation. The second thing is that um, we relied on science. We brought in testing in house. If you imagine, we started hearing about COVID in, in early January as a concern. We we're able to bring testing in house at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi and Mubadala Healthcare at the end of January and beginning of February, a year ago. Uh, And the third is that not only society aligned, but as Will pointed out very early on, uh, all the healthcare providers in the UAE aligned with the government and with the regulator. It It was those three things that really helped us fortuitously tackle the first wave of COVID and flatten it. And now we're privileged to live in one of the safest places anywhere. The curve's been flat essentially since June. And uh, thankfully we've had no further waves. Now what it's done uh, to us in terms of delivering healthcare, it's fast forwarded innovation. So not only are our 6,000 caregivers and in fact all caregivers around the world who are on the front facing lines of delivering care during COVID heroes, but they're also tremendous innovators. There are no shortage of good ideas out there around the world. And we saw this too at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Our caregivers stepped up. They came up with innovations every single day from taking our in-house build app and extending it over the range of care. So it prevented people from having to leave their house. We're able to connect with them through their phones very early on we were able to provide them with the primary and secondary and even tertiary follow-up care that they needed uh, and ensure that they only came to us when it was absolutely essential when they were with us it minimized the time they were in hospital and importantly we deployed wearables in a way that we've never seen before we now have historic number of the wearables all feeding back into our databases processed through artificial intelligence algorithms and allowing us to make decisions real time, including uh, delivering home pharmaceuticals, uh, remote monitoring, uh, sending people out to see them, et cetera. So really this story, the pandemic has been a tremendous story where you see governments, providers, regulators aligning, innovation being fast-tracked, and the heroes on the front lines of care, being able to uh, to work with everybody to improve the health of nations and and essentially humanity. So we're very privileged to be a part of it.
0: Absolutely, uh, echoing what Will said earlier about telehealth and seeing that come to um, fruition during the pandemic, absolutely. And I have one more question for each of you and it's, um, you know, ranking how you view value-based care in the future. And so the question is on a scale of one to 10, one being hopelessly pessimistic and 10 being overly optimistic, um, where are you at on value-based care for 2021 and why? And so I'll ask Will first, and then um, Rakesh if you can go next, and Albert, you can wrap us up.
1: You know, Morgan, I think it's a great question. It is, uh, it's a challenging question because I think if you ask me how optimistic am I about value-based care in the future, I would say it's a 10 plus, right? It, eventually, we have to become a more value-based uh, health care system. Uh, otherwise, we'll bankrupt our country. That's the reality. So we're going to have to do it through necessity. You know, unfortunately, I think it's going to take a while. You know, the, the, the pace of change is maddeningly slow. That's the reality, whether it's, you know, bundled care, ACOs, changing rules in ACOs, new generation ACOs, you know, what it ultimately comes down to is really taking care of populations. And and I think that that's going to continue to take time. I I do feel some optimism that will likely pick up some steam uh, here over the course of the next few years. Uh, but but I would say um, that that it will be still a slower pace than most of us in healthcare would like to see, which would be to really see it speed up.
0: So ten with a asterisk
3: next to it, right? Yeah.
0: That's- <laughs> All right, Rakesh.
3: Uh, will and I tend to think alike on these things, and I would I would copy and paste his his notion. Um, what. The, the perspective that we have that's slightly uh, broader at the Cleveland Clinic is a, is a global one in that we see value-based care coming at us in different ways in our different constituencies, whether it's Toronto, Canada, where we have a clinic, several outpatient clinics, London, England, where we're set to open, Abu Dhabi an expansion into the Middle East and, and Shanghai. So each of those constituencies has a different pathway and trajectory and mandates propelling us forward towards value-based care. And it's so exciting. And of course the US, Florida, Florida, Northeast Ohio, et cetera. What's exciting is we get to learn from each other. So I've learned a ton from Will and the team in Florida uh, and I'm learning from Brian Donnelly in London and, and our colleagues, Melissa Ning in, in, in China. So we're very, very excited about value-based care globally as well said in the US, a little less certain how quickly it'll happen.
0: And Albert, where are you at on the scale?
3: So I'm probably
2: not as optimistic as Will and Rakesh, uh, certainly not at a 10 plus, but I would probably rate it at about an eight. And so, you know, although COVID has caused challenges for patients, um, it's caused challenges for healthcare systems, for physicians, uh, we all acknowledge that the importance of providing the very best uh, quality and cost-effective care has not changed. But for hospital systems and physicians, um, you know, especially our system, COVID has impacted our elective procedures and physician office visits and has revealed for us the risk of relying on an entirely uh, fee-for-service reimbursement system. So this makes value-based care even more important and more relevant in 2021. Um, you know, I, we all can attest to this. Having a diversified portfolio of upside-only and risk-based agreements will help protect from swings in patient volume, like we've experienced during, during, uh, during this pandemic. So, you know, risk-based agreements do involve risk, um, but a tight alignment between healthcare providers and hospitals, uh, I think will help us to achieve our goal to provide the very best care for every life we touch, um, whether we're here in Abu Dhabi or in Florida or, or, or in Memphis Um, and and, and help us all weather the storm together going forward.
0: Absolutely, Albert. A great note to end on. So thank you all, um, Rakesh, Will, and Albert, for a great discussion today. And thank you to our audience for joining us as well. Check out our website. We have a lot of great forums coming up in the next couple months. And as always, we appreciate any feedback. So thanks again. Thank
2: Thank you. Thank you.